there is a sweetness of God's Spirit in the room this morning. I want to take just a moment. Let's, let's go back before God again in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we are asking that your Spirit would guide us, teach us, walk us through what the Word has to say. God, thank you for the way your Spirit is already at work and moving in this room. Lord, we're asking today that we would be able to meet with you in a way that is, that is honest, in a way that is pure, in a way that is led by your Spirit, in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are certain topics that are found in Scripture that are easily received and they are warmly welcomed within the church. Teachings on God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's bountiful supply. Teachings on how God protects us and how God provides for us and how God is always with us both in good as well as in bad times. Those types of teachings are very easily received. They provide a measure of comfort. They also remind us just how much God loves his children. Conversely, there are other topics in Scripture that are considered to be abrasive, unwelcome, even irritated whenever it is mentioned within the church, much less within culture, but also within the church. Now, granted, these same topics come from the same Bible. They are inspired by the same God, and they are equally useful for our sanctification. But we respond differently to these. These are topics that make us feel exposed or convicted and uncomfortable. I'm saying that because our topic for this morning will squarely find itself in category number two. People do not reject the topic that we get into today because Scripture is unclear. People will reject the topic because the flesh dies hard. People reject the topic because heart-level sins often get justified by personal experience. We quickly say things like, if you knew what I knew, if you've been where I've been, if you've seen what I've seen, you would understand why I hold this particular position. Heart-level sins entangle themselves around the person's heart. They become, in many ways, a part of that person's identity so that whenever that sin is addressed through Scripture, oftentimes it feels like an attack against the person. So this morning we are addressing sins of division. Sins of division form this unholy alliance that showcases contempt, self-love, and spiritual snobbery. Its members include partiality, favoritism, discrimination, racism, classism, bigotry, prejudice, hatred, judgmentalism, and every other associated word with that. These sins travel in packs. These sins have no place in the life of a child of God. In fact, a class church, one practicing discrimination and partiality, does not magnify the grace of God or adequately reflect the glory of God. When sins of division are prevalent within the church, I can guarantee you 
there is a common cause behind it. It's a gospel issue. When these sins are prevalent in the church, here's what happens. There has been a breakdown in gospel teaching. There is a breakdown in gospel understanding. There is a breakdown in gospel living. When the gospel is consistently proclaimed and fully understood and faithfully lived out, it will unify the body of Christ. It will call out heart sins at a heart level and challenge followers of Christ to confess and to repent and to forsake those particular sins. When we teach and regularly understand the gospel, it reminds us that the foot of the cross is level, that we are who we are, we have what we have by the grace of God and nothing else. We add nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Believers who understand the gospel are going to be those who love people, and that love is completely incompatible with looking down our nose at anyone. Gospel people do not hate people because of the color of their skin. Gospel people do not reject people because of the size of their bank account. Gospel people do not disrespect people because of where they grew up and the past that they have lived and the generation that they came from or the current state in which the person finds themselves in. The gospel will snuff out hatred and it will instill humility. Gospel people love people, period. Period. A world fractured by hateful division needs a church flourishing in gospel truth. I need you to hear my heart before we go any further in this message today. My desire is not to make people angry. The word many times will make people angry. My desire is that we walk out of this service looking a little bit more like Jesus than what we did when we came in. My desire is that we are undivided between what we profess and what we actually live. We live in a city that has been hurt by division. Racially, politically, economically, and listen, even spiritually. Our city needs the church to get this right. Our families need the church to get this right. Even our churches need the church, big C, to get this right. So how do we get it right? How do we live undivided lives? where we are seeing people the way Jesus sees them. We are loving people the way Jesus loves them. We are serving people the way Jesus served them. How do we do that? What are biblical expectations that are placed upon followers of Christ? All of those answers and others are found right in the Word. I invite you to go with me again this morning, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. James 2, 1 through 9. I'm speaking this morning on sins of division. As you find your place in the text, I want to remind you of statements that you've heard me share multiple times before. You've heard me say the gospel is not just the good news that saves. 
It is the good news that sanctifies. You will see that in the text again today. You've heard me say we never outgrow the gospel, we grow into the gospel. This text, once again, will help us identify that idea. You've heard me say the gospel is not what we need to be saved alone. The gospel is also what we need to live as a saved person. This is going to put on a clinic on that idea this morning. All of what we're describing here comes back to a gospel understanding. So this morning, I'm going to have a word of prayer. Instead of me reading the text in advance, I'm going to break it down verse by verse as we walk through. So I want to encourage you, keep your Bible open there, and I'm going to call out the references as I go through. But once again, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you to lead us through this. May your spirit lead us through this. Lord, may there be such a unity that is built around the gospel and upon your desire through your word that, God, we walk away from here not divided but more united than we've ever been, more focused on the gospel than we've ever been, more loving of people than we've ever been. Lord, we need your spirit to do that in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 1 ended with marks of undefiled religion. And then chapter 2, it picks up with the importance of undivided fellowship. James is confronting a consistency issue that was taking place in the house of God. The problem was people of God were showing partiality. People of God were not representing the views of Scripture. People of God were not living the Word. That's where we ended this last week. As we also saw this last week, one of the best ways to determine what you truly believe is by assessing what you actually do. This is one of those examples. What are we actually doing? And their actions in this text pointed back to the problem. Now, verse number one, it sets up the theme that we get into. So if you would look in that verse, it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Pause right there. The problem was believers were attempting to pursue Jesus while holding on to personal favoritism. And he tells them right up front, he says, do not hold your faith. Do not walk with this view of your understanding of Christ with this attitude. This attitude does not line up with the very faith that you're saying you believe. Favoritism is also translated as partiality or respective persons. It means judging someone based on outward appearance. I'm going to keep saying outward appearance throughout the course of this morning. In verses 2 through 4, he gives an example of exactly how favoritism was impacting the church of the first century. There were people who were showing preference and partiality towards those who had money, and they were also kind of disdaining, and they were disqualifying, and they were pushing away those who did not have money. That, that was an example of them showing partiality within the first century. Now, verse number 9 and verse number 4 describe how serious partiality and favoritism are to God. Verse 9, drop down to that section in your verses. It says, but if you show partiality... Here's the next phrase. You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God sees partiality as a sin issue. And when there's a sin issue, it's always coming back to a gospel solution. Verse 4 says, 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The word distinctions is also translated discriminated. It's translated that way in the NIV, the New Living Translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It it refers to judging someone at face value, looking only on the surface, discriminating against others based upon appearance, social status, race, or personal evaluations. And here's what James says in verse 4. Those who are acting in this way, quote, become judges with evil motives. Did you see it in the text? If you get nothing else out of chapter 2, just just know this. According to Scripture, showing partiality, favoritism, discrimination, judging based on appearance, dividing people based on personal distinctions, according to Scripture, that is sin and that is evil. That is sin and that is evil. Do you see it in the text? It's right there before us. I want you to also notice there are no caveats There's no exclusions in the footnotes. There's no, if you understood what happened to me, allowances. It's just there. And he doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to make us feel better. He just says, if you're you're showing partiality, you're committing sin. It's just right there. Here's the thing. If you and I live long enough, we will be hurt. We will be sinned against. We will be disrespected. We will be pushed down. We will experience hardship. It it comes with life. But the moment you and I begin to discriminate against people groups, against types of people based on real or here's even perceived threats. The moment we do that, we're not understanding the gospel. The gospel addresses those things head on. For a person to proclaim faith in Jesus while holding an attitude of personal favoritism, it is both contradictory as well as incompatible. Uh, Living a life of partiality, it conflicts with our salvation and it conflicts with the nature of our Heavenly Father. Scripture emphasizes there is no partiality with God. Romans 2, Leviticus 19, Job 34, Proverbs 24, Proverbs 28, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 1, and on and on and on. Okay, so let's go back to the example he gave in verses 2 through 4. He talks about two men coming into the assembly or into the congregation. One man has gold on his hands and nice clothes on his back. From all outward appearances, appearances, all outward appearances, he's wealthy and he's important. And also talks about another man coming in as well. He says he's poor. He's dirty. From all outward appearances, it would seem as though he would be unwelcomed. He's unnecessary. And according to the text, it says the church showed partiality. They looked at the, the wealthy man and they said, come here. There's a good seat for you. And then they look at the poor man and they say, you can go stand over there. Or you can sit down at my feet. 
He, he looks at this, he was like, verse 4, again, have you not made distinctions? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He says, what you're doing is evil. There's a motive behind it to show how far off the mark that idea is from the heart of God and God's view of people. He says in verse number five, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Did God not choose? Oh, listen, God's choosing always points to God's grace. He chose us. He called us. And that calling was a calling based on grace. That is gospel truth. God saves us on the basis of Jesus' work on the cross, not because of who we are and not because of what we have. That is the essence of what's at the gospel. So here's basically what James is saying. If you look at a person on the outside and you try to determine if that person has value, if you look at a person and who they are today as a measure of their potential, if you look at a person and you think it's okay to discriminate based on outward appearance, he says, you're not understanding what God did for you. You don't understand the heart of God. You, you don't understand the gospel message because God's choice of you and I had nothing to do with merit, nothing to do with money, nothing to do with man's evaluation. It had everything to do with the unmerited favor and the grace of God on our life. He was like, that's what our example is supposed to be. And you say, but you don't know what people did to me. Hold a second. We don't understand what we did to God. He did not sink this truth into my experience and your experience. He sunk it back into, look at what humanity did in rebellion against our creator. The doctrine of grace forces all of us to see people on the basis of God's redemptive plan and not according to human merit or social status. When believers contemplate God's grace, it reminds us of all the barriers that he's brought down for us. It reminds us that none were righteous before God. It points back to the vastness of God's kingdom, the diversity of the kingdom, the beauty of the kingdom. When, when we contemplate the grace of God and you sit with and say, God, help me to understand grace from your perspective, it just leads us back to the fact that we are where we are. We have what we have by the unmerited favor of God. It reminds us again of how Jesus lived and the barriers that he constantly brought down. Have you thought for a moment about all the barriers Jesus brought down? By the way, one commentator brought this idea, but I only saw it in one, but you can go and study it for yourself. The word partiality is a distinctly Christian term in the first century. In other words, the idea of showing favoritism was simply accepted within society. It took the gospel to come out and say, no, partiality is wrong. Favoritism, discrimination, prejudice, wrong. So here, here's the thing. Think about how every part of Jesus' life was about bringing down barriers. From his very birth, he challenged cultural barriers between kings and commoners at his birth. 
He challenged them between the wise and the uneducated, rich and poor, foreigners and citizens, the religious and the irreligious. Somehow, in some way, when God showed up on the scene, they all showed up in order to see. Throughout his earthly ministry, he loved people, and he also taught his disciples to do the same. He was just as much at home with a poor, sick beggar who came up to him on the street as he was with a rich religious person who found him in the middle of the night. He loved people. He called out the sin of the woman at the well in John 4, but he also called out the sin of the crowd accusing the woman of adultery in John chapter 8. He called out sin where sin was found because sin is a barrier to redemption. He feasted with his disciples in the upper room, Luke 22, and he feasted with known sinners at Levi's house in Mark chapter 2. He loved people. Even when Jesus' comments seemed to be harsh, often towards religious people or those wanting the miraculous in the moment, you can see in the context he is teaching them something. He is drawing out an issue that is a barrier to redemption. Over and over again, you see he brings down barriers. At his death, the veil of the temple came down, symbolically giving people access to the Father through Christ. At his death, he removed the separation between Jewish and Gentile believers, bringing them together in one family, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Because the barriers came down, Ephesians 4 now tells us, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hold on just a moment. If we're creating new divisions and discriminated against others, we are not preserving the unity of the Spirit. And our actions are not leading to peace. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it describes the depth of the unity that God wants his people to experience. He says there is one body and one spirit just as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus' life in his ministry, in his message, confronted barriers to redemption. He brought down the walls. Here's the reason that's important. That's why it is sinful and evil for us to rebuild the same barriers he worked to bring down. He says, if, if that's what we're engaged in, you don't understand the gospel. Now, I need to pause here for just a moment. Because there is a difference between barriers to redemption. When I speak of those, I'm talking about things like issues of sin, attacks against the Imago Dei, issues as far as challenges to the gospel. There's a distinction between those who are barriers of redemption and God-ordained distinctions that he put there by choice. There's a distinction here. And we got to point that out because if we don't see this, then all of a sudden we start pulling down something that God put there by design. Here's a great one. God made men and God made women. Both are different. Both are beautiful. Both are distinct. Both are perfectly designed by God. God created different roles within marriage. The husband is called to be the spiritual servant leader of the home. The wife is called to be the submissive helpmate of the husband. Both roles are distinct. Both roles are different. 
Both roles are needed. Both roles are designed by God. And when both roles are being lived within marriage, they lead to God's best in that marriage. God has created different roles in the church, different gifts in the body, different talent levels in his people, different ethnicities in his world, etc. There are many distinctions that God perfectly designed and put into this world. Here's the point. Any distinction designed by God is ultimately designed for our good and for his glory. When those are embraced, they lead to just distinctions of human flourishing. They, they help us understand what God's best is. They, they lead into deeper wonder and beauty. They, they lead into deeper fellowship with our creator. They, they lead into a deeper understanding of the gospel. All of those things come by God's distinctions. But when we create our own, when out of evil motives, sinful actions, we create our own, Instead of it leading to God's best, it holds people back. It divides. It hurts. Doesn't matter whether a person is rich or poor, male or female, young or old. If we do not understand the importance of God's distinctions and why those are important and how they're necessary for our flourishing, we will constantly be pushing back against the message of the Bible. So if you would look with me at what's happening in verses 5 through 7, just kind of look in the text. I'm going to walk you through what's taking place here. The, the big point that he's wanting to bring out is when people show partiality based on outward appearance and fleshly desires, it always leads to division, and here it is, and foolish reasoning. Our actions just don't even make sense at that point. God's treatment towards the poor in verse number 5 is with the intent to demonstrate the greatness of his grace. Uh, choosing the poor to be rich in faith is not suggesting that the poor person has more value than a rich person. He, he's showing how deep and how wide and how beautiful and glorious God's grace really is. God's choice of us reminds us that every single one of us was in spiritual poverty before God. We all came before him as broken sinners in need of grace. The grace of God makes the rich man poor because he cannot depend upon his riches. The grace of God makes the poor man rich because he inherits the riches of the kingdom. The grace of God is what's needed on both sides. Now look at what it says in verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Let's pause there. James is setting up a frightening fact. God chose the poor. In verse 5, and the church dishonored the poor. In verse 6, one verse afterwards, it, it literally in this moment, showing partiality is not only foolish, we are setting ourselves against our creator himself. Throughout Scripture, we clearly see God's concern for the poor. Psalm 41.1, Psalm 68.10. It even says over in Proverbs 17.5, He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. And then it says in Proverbs 21.13, He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. If we disdain the poor, 
it shows disdain for God. If our prayers are not being answered, he's saying you need to evaluate how you're treating the poor. And he's not done. James reminds them of how it is that they have treated the rich among them. Now, now I, I want to be careful here because everything that we go through in Scripture, there is an immediate context. What was the original writer saying to the original audience and the original setting for the original purpose with the original genre? If you do not understand the original context, we cannot take that truth and apply it to today. So what we have is he starts with, do not hold your faith with an attitude of partiality. Then he gives an example. The example there is an example they're facing within that church. Now, that's not the only area of partiality, and we got to be very clear about that. So in the section, he talks about the fact that, that this is how the rich have treated you. The word oppress is there. It means to tyrannize, to exercise inordinate power over others. It's very likely that he's referring to the Sadducees based on other writings. They were wealthy, aristocratic, and secularized. They actively persecuted the early church. And basically, he's pointing out how foolish and short-sighted and inconsistent it is when he says, you've given preferential treatment to the very people who are going to come back and try to hurt you. He's like, that, that doesn't even make sense. Now, again, this section is misunderstood. I want to be careful here. James is talking about a type of partiality that they were facing. He's not saying that every poor person is chosen for salvation and is rich in the faith. And he's also not saying that every rich person is oppressive and slandering the name of Jesus. We need to remember wealth is not sinful, and at the same time, poverty is not virtuous. It, it, neither one of those is the big point. What he's pointing out is the example of partiality that was happening in the church at that time. And let's be honest, some of the same things happen in the church in this time. But that's not the only thing that's happening within the church. The big issue is partiality, favoritism, discrimination, and what it looks like within our context can be different. Verse number eight is the only other verse we've not covered at this point. It says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Uh, this word royal, it carries the idea of supreme or sovereign. It indicates absolute and binding authority over others. When a sovereign king were to give an edict, it is completely to be carried out. It is completely binding by all the subjects. Here's the connection that James is making. God is king. God is sovereign. He has an edict. He has a law in relation to how we treat each other. And it's found right there in the text. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, that one piece right there, that particular law, according to Romans 13, 10, it says, love is the fulfillment of the law. When we love our neighbor as ourselves, here's the thing, we're doing well. When we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're, we're walking in accordance with the king's desires. But when we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves, he's saying that's pointing out a problem that needs to be brought back before your king. It is impossible to show partiality 
and to fulfill the command to love your neighbor as yourself at the same time. So here's your takeaway thoughts for this morning. I give you a truth to remember. These are fast. Sins of division reveal an absence of gospel understanding and an inconsistency in the faith. When sins of division are within culture, when sins of division are within the church, when sins of division are within our lives, when sins of division are within our families, when sins of division are within the groups that we hang out with, there is a lack of gospel understanding and there's an inconsistency that is happening with our faith. Then I've got a question to ask. Everybody, I'm going to encourage you, personalize it. Have I, personalize, have I embraced any worldly or sinful ideas that are causing me to look down on some people, elevate others, or judge based on outside appearance? Our culture is ripe with fruit of division. There are many ideas that are circulating within academia, within government, within churches, for that matter. A lot that are happening on social media that encourage division and distinctions with skin color, gender, age, religious beliefs, socioeconomic standing. I encourage every believer to ask a personal question here. Is there any part inside me, is there any idea that I have now bought into where I am looking at one person or one group as morally superior, as worthy of more honor? Am I looking at a race, a creed, a gender, and saying they are less than me or they are more than me? If that's the case, there's only one response for a person who desires to walk as a faithful disciple of Jesus. Repent. That's it. Repent. Confess it before God. Forsake it before God. Repent. Speak against that type of sin when you see it. Pray against that type of sin when you see it. Use the testimony, use the life that Christ has given you to be a person of peace and to speak truth into difficult situations. It doesn't mean that pain is not real. It doesn't mean that hurt is not there. It doesn't mean that wrong is not being done. It means that for the child of God, we submit every part of our life, this included, back before our Heavenly Father. And we say, God, show me what it looks like for you to live through me here. Here's the final piece. A step to pursue. I want to encourage you, read through the Gospels and write down how Jesus interacted with people. Whom did he engage and how did he engage him? Ultimately, Jesus is our example. And regardless of whatever has happened in our life or happened in our family, we have to remember, Jesus was mistreated, he was hurt, he was despised, he was rejected, 
He was beaten and he was broken more than anybody who's ever walked on the face of the earth. And how did he respond? Love. Serving. That's what this world needs. The world needs to see the church get this right. So here's how the invitation is going to be this morning. It's kind of two parts. One part of this invitation is I am going to encourage every person in the room. It's, it's what God has been working into my heart for this whole week. God, point out any place in my life where favoritism, partiality, prejudice, hatred, judgmentalism, discrimination, point out wherever it might be in my life that I can confess that and repent of it and walk in the freedom that is in Christ. So I'm going to encourage everyone in the room to do the same thing. But here's the other part. I'm going to encourage people this morning that if you are willing to say, I'm going to be a person of the gospel, I'm going to be a person of peace, I'm going to love people well. I'm going to love my community well. I'm going to serve people regardless of what they look like, what they have, or where they came from. All I can say is we need to see that as well. I think sometimes on a message like this, if we come to the end of the invitation and, and somebody comes forward, the first thought is that person is a racist or that person is bigoted, and that's, that's not what this is. This, this is areas of, yes, there are pieces that we do. If God convicts, we do need to bring before God. But could you imagine what God could do in this city if just this group of people in the room right now said, I want to live the gospel in my community. I'm going to love people well. I'm going to treat people with respect. I'm going to serve. Like, could you imagine what could happen with that? Our city needs to see the church get this right. Guess what? We're part of the church. So however the Spirit of God leads you in this time of invitation, I'm going to ask you to respond. If it might be you need prayer, I'm going to ask our pastors and some of the pastor's wives to come forward. There's going to be our, our worship team coming forward as well. There might be people coming forward that they, they simply need a place to pray. They, they need a place to be quiet. There might be people who come forward, and what they're basically saying is, I want to be one right now who is going to stand in this community, stand for loving people well and loving the gospel. In a few moments, I'm going to have a word of prayer over that group. So it might be in this invitation, you just say, I need to be that person in the area that I'm in. Whatever it is that God's burdening your heart in, I'm going to ask you to respond to him. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we recognize that this is a text that can be divisive, but Lord, you put it there to deal with barriers of redemption, barriers that get in the way of human flourishing. You put it there to help us understand what it looks like to live consistent lives. 
So, Lord, we're praying right now during this time that your spirit would work in this room. God, may you raise up a generation of people out of this room, those who are men, those who are women, those who are young, those who are old, those who are black, those who are white, those who are Asian, those who are Hispanic. God, raise up a generation right now in this room that says we are going to love people. We're going to be gospel people. We're going to serve people. We're going to help people. We're going to love in a way that Jesus loved. God, I pray that your spirit would do that in this room at this time. So God, we're asking, would you have your way? And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you would stand. There's going to be people that are going to be at the altar that are going to be praying. And like I said, in just a moment, I'm going to pray over those who are saying, I want to be a witness for Christ when it comes to the gospel.